I will now uh, request uh, Srimati Shashikala Anandji to, to come up and uh, say a few words. Before that, like always, I wanted to read out a few words about her. And uh, Shashikala Anandji holds a degree in architecture from the School of Architecture, Madras University. And she has been researching the classical Indian science of architecture, which is Vastu, for over 40 years. Uh, she was a student of uh, Sri Ganpati Sthapati, a leading authority on the Vastu Shastras, and she was a part of a team that made three decades ago in 1991 the award film, uh, the award-winning film uh, Shilpi Speaks, that explained the traditions of the sculptor. She has written several books on Vastu, some of which are the Indian tradition of design based on Vastu Shastras, a Penguin Guide to Vastu and Vastu, a Path to Harmonious Living. She has also uh, written an English translation of Pratimamana Lakshanam, a book on iconometry by uh, Sri Ganpati Sthapati. So she now lives in Kotagiri and she and her husband have set up a meditation center in a small village out of, uh, outside of Kotagiri. And they are continuing their work with teaching and training young people on the path of uh, yoga and Vastu. So with that, gives me great delight and honor in inviting uh, Shashikala Anandji to uh, you know, say a few words on the sthapatis, the guilds, and the development. Thank you. Thank you. Namaskaram. <clears throat> it was a great pleasure getting the, um, the manuscript from Gurupreet and uh, Bharat. It was a wonderful read. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, as the other speakers have said, it's an extraordinary effort from a, a first-time writers. But then I also think when you write for the first time, you put in your heart and soul. And so you're more inspired. You get very jaded after the second or the third book. So I think that enthusiasm is there for everybody to... Uh, uh, read and experience with them. And uh, for those of us who come from Tamil Nadu, I think the idea of uh, the Pallavas, the Cholas and the Pandyas is the trilogy written by Kalki. It's an unforgettable uh, series, which is what we were all brought up on. So the Pallavas is Shivagami in Sabadam, where the whole experience of Mamalapuram and Kanchipuram has been depicted with the everyday life of the people. And also the whole uh, skirmish with the um, Rashtrakudas and the Vatapi and so on. So there is a, a feeling of both these cultures when you read um, the uh, books uh, of Kalki. And then of course the Pandya, which uh, comes in Parthiban uh, Kanavur, and uh, the, the most famous of all, which is Ponni and Selvan, which is about the Chola kings. So there is a certain uh, vibrancy to this uh, cultural heritage that we sit on. And um, one of the things that I learned in my uh, 10 years with Ganapati Stapti and subsequent years with uh, all the uh, Vishwakarma people I have worked with is that these are a people who have straddled the history of the Indian subcontinent through the various kings and strifes and so on. And they actually moved. They were a guild. And there is a mention of the Shilpi guild in uh, uh, Buddhist Brahmanas and so on. 
and uh, Ganapati Stapati has talked to me a lot about how they used to move bag and baggage when the next kingdom, the king was more uh, a better patron. They moved there and they uh, did their best for that uh, community there. And uh, I, I totally agree with uh, Meenakshi ji's uh, uh, background about uh, all the uh, various types of buildings for all the dharmas, whether it is Jainism, Buddhism or Hinduism, built by the same people. In fact, Stapati used to make this uh, uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek statement saying that Vishwakarmas are all shaktas by birth. We worship Shakti. We wear the uh, physical uh, uh, characteristics of a Shaivite, Vibhuti and everything. And then we build the temples for a Vishnu devotee. So actually their capacity to be able to straddle these multiple uh, streams of the Shanmarga was because they had a very strong rooting in the philosophies and the religious systems. They were actually scholars in the Agama Shastra, as well as uh, people who had studied the Vedas. They were also astrologers. So if you look at the uh, tradition of the Vishwakarma, they were actually five groups of people, subgroups, Manu, Maya, Tvashta, Shilpi, and Vishwagnya. So it means that everything that is designed in the environment was actually under their purview. Till, of course, the British educated system took over, they were sidelined, they were completely marginalized. And we English-speaking university uh, educated elite took over design. And we don't design, you see, we put it on paper. And we have workmen doing it for us. But in the tradition, which is what I uh, uh, sent back as a feedback to Gurpreet and Bharat, in the tradition, it was a team effort, starting with the sourcing of the material, which could be the rock from the rock face and taking it to the uh, building site, which means by bullock carts or being dragged by elephants, whatever, it was taken to the site. And after that, the cutting of the material, then the building of the structure, finishing, and then the final eye-opening of the uh, sculpture. Everything is the same community. So the capacity to look at that material and see the beauty of the hidden sculpture within it or the hidden temple within it and to be able to finally enliven it. Because eye-opening is a symbolic way of bringing the divine energy into the earth. And this whole process is a remarkable journey. And today's architecture is completely divested of this amazing spirituality. And it's something that I've been fighting for for 40 years to bring it back so that people can study this and actually they can embody because the Vishukarma community, the most beautiful part of the Parampara Siksha is that the child embodies. It is not sitting here in the top of the head as a cerebral piece of information. Their hands are crafting it. Their emotions, like the Stapati was telling me, there are times when he has made something very beautiful and he has to part from it. He actually used to weep because it becomes such a part of themselves, such a part of their physical body and an extension of their heart. So this uh, entire process 
of the Vishwakarma, which is, I think, a remarkable story that ought to be highlighted rather than the kings who patronized. They were only the patronized uh, patrons. They were the money bags, as we call it today. They opened their treasury for this action to take place. In fact, temples were supposed to have been the people's contribution. All the people were involved, the local people were involved in the temple. So they also offered, as uh, Meenakshi ji was saying, and uh, uh, earlier speakers have been speaking about it, there is a contribution, even if it is a small amount, by every member of that particular space. And when a temple is being built, it is also important to remember that a story, a narrative is created even if it is not a, um, an, a narrative that goes back hundreds of years, even if it's a current day narrative of a family or a, uh, or a vision that somebody saw or a dream or whatever, that is brought into that space. It is anchored into that space so that there would be a link between the people and the actual action of that temple being built there. And of course, the styles a lot of data being pushed around by uh, historians about the styles. The style actually is an evolutionary process. When the craftspeople, when the artisans, when the sculptors, when the uh, artists learned to use the stone, learned to use the brick in more and more sensitive, more and more skilled ways, you evolved a new style. It has nothing to do with historical dating of, you know, 300 was this style and 500 was, it was not like that. It is the capacity, like for example, when I make drawings as an architect, there is a certain kind of drawing that I can make when I have had two, three years of experience. As today, after 40 years of experience, I can actually see the whole design in my head and my pencil does it in five minutes. I don't use the computer at all. I never learned it. I don't want to learn it. For me, it's always the pencil on a sketch pad. So for, for that ability to translate it, it requires maybe a half a day for me. What would have taken me maybe several weeks as a youngster. So this movement or evolution of your skill set. And here we are not talking about one person's skill set. We are talking about a team. Because, for, uh, for example, a tem temple of the stature, of the size, of magnitude of Brihadishwara temple in Tanjavur to have been built required the, the involvement of over 3,000 people. So today, I think as a management study, it is a remarkable effort. How did they manage to feed 3,000 people? Where did they house them? So all this needs to be looked at. Apparently, there was a whole township of uh, blacksmiths who were supplying the metal needed for the work. Every chisel has to be sent back to the forge after one hour. It loses its uh, edge. So can you imagine a thousand workers and their chisels, the sizes of the forges, which were actually 
re-sharpening these metals, how many of them would have got broken, which means new ones were being made. So we are talking about a technical factory out there. Right? And this whole foolish theory that they are bringing in, that they had a three-kilometer long ramp on which the stones were being rolled. Those of you who, are, who know your basic engineering, if you're building a structure, which is at an angle, which is what your temple uh, uh, vimana is, and they are actually uh, without any mortar. The stone is being placed one above the other on self-weight. And the middle is a hollow, right? If you hit a, a three kilometer long ramp, which is going to be 208 feet tall, which is the height of the Vimana, this will break. It cannot stand the force of this. It is engineered, it's an engineering fallacy. There is no way an unstable structure can take the weight of this uh, ramp. Actually, what happens in the tradition, nobody asked the traditionalist. This is, this is why we made that film. A Shilpi speaks. For the first time, a Shilpi has spoken. Historians have come with their theories. Translators in, from Samskritam to English have come up with their theories. Nobody talked to the Vishwakarma. And they have a tradition of building stone temples that are mortar-free joints, which is called the Sahara Kattu Suvar, which means a scaffolding wall. So what they did was, this is the size of your temple, or let me take, this is the size of your temple, okay? The width of the base into three would be the size of the scaffolding wall that will go around the temple. And it will embrace the structure, and it's made of mud with some uh, stone pieces. Huh? And this wall, the scaffolding wall, will go up with the temple. The center, which is an empty space, will get filled up with river sand. So at every level, they got a platform, three times the size of the width of the base, on which the biggest stone pieces were kept. And there would be a spiral staircase around this, on which the smaller pieces were carried by the workmen. And the big ones will keep going up. The topmost, the, the famous uh, uh, Shikara of Brihadishura temple, everybody says, such a big piece, how did they bring? You cannot roll such a big piece on a ramp, on, an, uh, on a uh, structure like this. It is not possible. What happened was it was placed on the structure, on this, and it would be moved. As this was built, it would be moved and they will be moving it with a crowbar. I don't know whether you have seen how they move with a short crowbar. It's only about four and a half feet uh, long and the stone will jump. I have seen them doing it. They knew exact fulcrum of the uh, piece. They knew exactly how to cut a, a stone uh, a, a quarry how to cut so that the stones will come out with the least uh, uh, effort. They don't have to bang at it. 
So they would create these small holes into which the wedges are driven and then water is poured into it. The wedge ex expands, it's a wooden wedge and slowly the stone will part. They had fantastic, simple technology. And how did they create the lovely surface of the stone? They used green leaves, paste. I saw them doing it. We, I uh, saw them going through the uh, building of a stone temple in uh, uh, near Velur. They would use a green paste. And the moment you uh, add a paste, a thick paste, it will settle into the crevices. And then it will leave the pieces that are slightly unfinished on top. Then you cut it again. You plane it again. You plane it again. And then finally you get this beautiful glossy surface. Very simple, extremely sensible uh, technology. And if you look at the, uh, the casting of the metal, as in uh, uh, the, the famous uh, um, uh, Nataraja that you can see in Koneri Rajapuram, it's eight and a half feet, including the pedestal, largest Nataraja that was made of at that time. And we are talking about 9th century AD. Uh, the size of the kiln that would have been needed for such a uh, task to be done, even today, Sapati says, I can't do it today because it requires a technology of such high order. And I don't know how many of you have seen that Konereja Rajapuram Nataraja. The, the, the golden hue of the face is remarkable because of uh, uh, they actually did add gold. High uh, level, levels of copper and uh, uh, enough gold to give that extraordinary luster to the face. This quality of the lost wax process requires a technology of a very high order. So for us today, not to recognize the technical expertise, the technological and scientific uh, uh, data needed to know when the melting of each of the metals took place, because the panchaloha is a combination of zinc, tin, uh, copper, gold, and silver, right? And uh, brass was used instead of copper sometimes. But the brass is also a combination material, right? So to know when each of them will melt, you're talking about a technology of a very advanced level. So today we are completely forgetting about all this. The quality of that metal is something else. And I, in our film, we have shown how they do the casting and what is the quality of the metal that they are using. And they are still doing it in, the, in their backyard, in their house, uh, with dogs and cattle and everything, you know, because it's such a simple technology. And I think today we need to awaken this capacity of touching this amazing capability skill within ourselves and to work as teams. Because this team efficiency is something I think India has completely lost. Today, all of us are pulling in various directions. There are no efficient teams because everybody wants to be on top. I also, as a, my second profession is management uh, training. And I tell you, it's a terrible situation. So this, I think all this is 
something that we need to study in greater detail. And I'm seriously hoping Bharat and Gurpreet can write a sequel which talks about the technology and uh, which talks about how these uh, communities can bring back their skills into the mainstream and be recognized for it. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Shishikala Ji, for your uh, words. And uh, it is incredibly sad at one level to learn and to get to know about all the things that we knew at one point we lost. And equally tragic is the realization that our mental, our process of decolonization that should have begun in 1947 still remains uh, a journey that is yet to take its first step. 